my name's Nathan Loxley. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, today is going to be uh, real fun. I say that because it seems like most of the time that I get to speak, it's always on something super, like, heavy, man. Like, <laughs> real heavy. And uh, thinking, man, I hope we're going through the book of Mark here. And so I was thinking, okay, filling in for Chris today. They had a baby, by the way. Pray for them. He has many, many daughters, right? Prayers for that people. I have three, and I don't know what I'm going to do. That guy, he has no chance, so pray for him. But we're going through in staff meeting. We're looking at the scriptures. Me and Ben are going to be preaching while he's gone. And so we kind of get him set up. Ben's like, ah, man, I need to switch weeks. All right, let's switch weeks. All right, so what does that mean that I have? I'm like, man, for like two years, I've just been screaming at you guys. And when I get up here and I'm getting all fired up and it's been serious and heavy, it's gonna, I'm excited. What's, what's this going to be? Let's take a break from that. And I read it and Mark 9, and I realize, oh, great, I get to talk about sin. So today we're going to talk about sin. And now that you're sat down and I'm looking at you, I seriously doubt you're just going to leave right now because that would be rude. And I'll call you out for it too. So welcome to an, the next 45 minutes where you're going to hear about things like sin and wrath and judgment. It's all the things you hoped for this morning when you woke up. Uh, happy Thanksgiving. Um, but yeah, we're going to be in Mark 9, and if you would, uh, if you don't have a Bible, raise that hand up. We will, we will get you one if you want to look, look at one. There's just something about the paper. still love the paper on a Bible, but, um, and if you don't own one, please take it with you. Like, that's why those are there. We want you to have them. Uh, but it's in Mark 9, and as you're getting there, I'm just going to say a real quick prayer for us. It's okay if your eyes are open, I promise. Jesus is okay with it too. Let's pray. So God, I just ask you in the next few moments to overcome us. God, overcome our doubt. Overcome our tendencies to not want to be told anything. God, right here and now, I just... I ask you to help me believe right now that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because more than ever, like more than ever, my sins are ever before me. You have, you have laid me open. And you see to the core of me and you know exactly who I am. So God, help me to remember and to know and really believe with everything that I am that my identity is not in my failure but in your victory in Jesus. God, I pray that for these people too today. That was we talk about hard topic, God, that they would come out of this seeing how amazing grace, mercy, and love really are. So in Jesus' name, Amen. Mark chapter nine. So we've been in Mark nine for several weeks, and so I got to reading this uh, earlier in the week. And early in the week, I decided oh, I know exactly how I'm going to preach this and what I'm going to preach about, and what we're going to hit. And man, I did all this crazy research. And I'll just say this has been a good week of just time with God pouring into the book of Mark. Mark's amazing. Like, you just don't know it at face value. But the guy, it's a piece of art. Like, it's literature. And that's how he wrote it. It's not like Luke, where it's just a bunch of uh, pretty much eyewitness testimonies put together. And so it's very fact-driven and pushed that way. In fact, Mark, in places, isn't even chronological. It doesn't even happen in order. So a lot of people have 
tried to say, well, Mark's not really scripture, right? It's not really the Bible because there's all these inconsistencies with the other gospels, right? And really what it is is Mark doesn't care about the order of things. He cares way, way, way more about the importance of things. Because the way that you put a story together is going to be the, the way that you develop your main focuses, the, the most important things. It's the way that you can develop themes that people can really understand what's going on. And a lot of times we need help when we hear some of the things that Jesus says, don't we? Because honestly, if we took Jesus' words sometimes at face value, literally, he's a crazy dude who needs a straitjacket. Like crazy. He literally tells people to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. And people took it literally because he probably was a little eccentric. He just was. Uh, there was, and the Bible says that there would be nothing that would attract you to him. Like he, people thought he was a nut job probably. So we need help and Mark does a great job of that. So I looked at the passage that we are gonna tackle today uh, and if we took it at face value, which is what I was doing, then we would go down this whole rabbit hole of, and it was gonna get crazy, guys. I was gonna nerd out all over you. Like, you probably would have stopped listening to me within four minutes, but I would have felt super, super smart. And that's probably why God said, you're an idiot. That's not what it's about. You don't get to preach that, because then you'd just be all sinning all over that stage, right? So, I, we were gonna get into sacrifices and what that looked like in Israel. We were gonna go through all these books of the Bible, but really, as I started to take a look at what we see in context around this little passage, we can't preach it by itself. We have to look at it as a whole thing, like one big story, one big message. So you've heard some of this before, and I don't necessarily remember how Chris preached them because the past two weeks of my life, I don't remember at all. Uh, it's been fun, couple weeks, sick people and broken bones and still busy and all that stuff. So I'm glad that we get to drive around to multiple people's houses and talk to people we haven't seen in a year about how thankful we are for the turkey. Like, it's gonna be a fun week too. But I don't know how he preached these, but all of this goes together. So it's gonna start in Mark 9 in verse 33. Oh, and for the next 35 minutes or so, you're gonna hear sniffles over and over and over. All right. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Jesus and the disciples had, were coming home. Jesus had a house in Capernaum. So they walked around the Sea of Galilee, just him and his 12 disciples. And they're walking home. And he's hearing them, like they're following him behind him, right? And they're all talking together. So he hears them. And he asks them the question, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for the way that, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. <clears throat> then John says to him, teacher, 
teacher, you won't believe it. We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And this is the fun part that we're going to tackle today. Listen to this real zinger off the front end. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Make you feel warm and fuzzy? Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Steve. I appreciate your encouragement. <clears throat> and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. You hear that? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it's better for you to enter the life, enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone would be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. If we were just to take those last few verses, seven or so verses on their own, like just pick up a Bible and turn straight to them and take them at face value, it would be a little bit crazy. It's better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be sunk in the ocean than it is to basically tempt, cause a little one to sin. And we're thinking, who's even a little one? I don't even know what you're talking about. And then he starts talking about amputating arms and legs and like plucking your eyes out. That's some real like sawed movie type stuff, right? So we have to see it in the whole context. All of this goes together. And it's bridged by that first verse. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So let's, let's look. How did we get to that point? How do we get there? And what is he trying to teach them through this? <clears throat> They're walking home. They have this argument amongst themselves about who is the greatest. Uh, I'm, I get the privilege, and it is a privilege. It's, <clears throat> it's blessed my life greatly uh, to be one of the coaches at Sycamore High School for football. It started with me being the chaplain there, and I've been there five years now, and so I get to actually like coach some football now, which is really cool for a guy who just was a fan, you know? Um, and I spend a lot of time with these guys, and I don't know if you've ever been around high school guys, especially in an athletic environment, but it tends to get competitive sometimes. Um, the other thing it tends to get, which I don't know if you're aware of this, because it wasn't like this when I was there, but high school guys right now who play football really, 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 like really like to look good. Yeah, they're all wearing the same uniform, but they accessorize, <laughs> right? Like, and I'm, I'm talking about like, whoa. It, it's funny, you'll walk in, you go to use the bathroom, and you're gonna see at least one of them, one of them in front of the mirror. And they got like their cool headband on that says something. And they got like gloves on and under armor. And they got like a towel hanging out, the perfect, what, the perfect way the towel's hanging out, perfectly folded. And you'll walk in and they'll be 
in the mirror. Somewhere in, I mean, what? You see a ghost, bro? What is going on? It's like he's squaring off against himself. Like, no, coach, I'm just getting ready to play. In front of a mirror? Yeah, yeah, coach. I'm good, man. Dude, it looks like you're about to go on a date, not go hit somebody. Like hair, per- I'm, I'm serious, hair like perfect tucked in. Everything perfect. You would think that the first time they hit the ground, they would jump up and ew, eat dirt, right? It, they primp more than you can ever imagine. I, it's strange to me, but it's competitive. And it's interesting because I even think that them primping and wanting to look good and all that stuff, it's the same kind of thing the disciples are doing here. If you ask those guys, a lot of those guys on that football team, and who's the best player on this team? Me. Why? Got that swagger, coach. The what? I got that swagger, coach. I'm a dog, coach. You're a dog? That's good now? Yeah. I thought you were a linebacker. I don't... But that, that's kind of what it is, that cocky, arrogant. Guys, you know what I'm talking about. You were a teenager, and you were a jerk. Can we all agree on that? I was a jerk. You were a jerk. You thought you were bad to the bone. You thought, man, I can knock out any dude and pick up any chick until you actually got around a girl, and then you were like, oh, gosh, no, you know. You're pretty. You know, so. But you thought, and you thought you knew everything, and you affiliated yourself with other people that made you feel great, and not just, I don't mean like, oh, I feel great. No, I mean like literally made you feel superior. Because there's always someone cooler than you, right? That's, that was the thing. It's like, man, if I could just hang out. Popularity is such a big deal in high school. Like outwardly, such a big deal. It plays into how we look and all that stuff. That's what the disciples are doing. They're arguing about who's the greatest. Out of the 12 of us, who's the best disciple? And it's interesting because just before this happens, like three of those disciples, Peter, James, and John, they've seen more stuff than everybody, and they had just come down off a mountain where they saw Moses and Elijah appear in a cloud in a great, huge light and standing and talking with Jesus, and all of them are like crazy glowing. And they talk to him, and they're freaking out. And on the way back down, Jesus says, don't tell anybody about what you just saw. And they're like, for real? This is what I needed to prove I was the greatest, Jesus. Let me get this one, Jesus. Like they've seen and done amazing things, right? They've seen people get healed. They've seen Jesus cast demons out of people. They saw him bring a girl to life who is dead. And then he sent them out to cast out demons and to heal people. They have something to argue about. Man, we're we're doing pretty good for ourselves right now but who's the greatest amongst us? And Jesus asked him the question, hey, guys, we're home now. Hey, what were y'all talking about on the road back there? And they couldn't speak. They didn't say a word. You know why? Daddy caught them. They were ashamed, right? And they knew, oh, crap. He's talked about this kind of stuff before. I'm not gonna be the one to answer him. Can you imagine they're sitting in a circle in the living room and Peter's looking at all of them like, don't you say anything. Don't you say it, right? And so Jesus knows their hearts. He knows exactly what's going on. So Jesus grabs a kid. Now, I don't, I don't know what his house at Capernaum was like. Apparently, there's just kids running through everywhere, and he was able to just go, oh, there's one, right? I don't, I don't know how this works, but there's kids there. So he grabs a kid, 
and he puts the kid in the middle of them, amongst them, and then he reaches, he leans down, and before he says anything, he hugs the kid, and he holds it. I mean, I want you to get the visual here. They're all sitting. He said he sat down with his disciples, and he grabs a kid and puts him out there, and he, he reaches out, and he embraces this child, and he brings this boy in and hugs him. And he says, whoever receives like one of these, like a child like this, receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. He also says that the, the first in my, the first will be last and the last will be first. And the idea is to be a servant of all. You wanna be last. That's what it looks like to be great in my kingdom is to love children. And that's, that would be easy to look at and go, okay, so, and there's a place in Matthew where it talks about kind of childlike faith and approaching Jesus with humility, humility like a child. But what's really going on here is this. Jesus is saying, this child right here, who was kind of insignificant in Jewish culture because they couldn't contribute, yet they still like consumed. So children were seen, they, they were seen as a, a nuisance, as, as not important. Like, you'll be important to us when you're old enough to work. When you can contribute to society, then you have rights. Then you can, then you, you can be valuable. But right now, you're, you're not. There's not much value there. And Jesus says, this is what my kingdom looks like. And what he's really saying is, you need to receive people like a child. I'm a parent. A lot of parents in here, yeah? The, I think about a lot of words when I think about parenting and what it means to have kids. Like, what are your kids to you? Oh, they're my heart. That's a popular thing that women say now, right? That's my heart. Um, you know what I thought about all week long that no one wants to say? Children are an incredible inconvenience. <laughs> Aren't they? Hey, ask, ask someone who is like, in their mid to late 20s, and they lived, got to live a single life for a while, and then they got married. They were married for a while, and they traveled. And they went out with their friends, and they had fun. And they had money and time. And then ask them about three months after they have a child if their life is convenient anymore. No. Last night, I'm preparing for this message today. It's 12.30 at night. I'm like, in the zone. Ugh. And my, my, I hear like, thup, 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 thup. Oh, gosh, no. And I see her. <laughs> hey, Daddy. 12.30, girl is like, bing, I'm ready to go. She walks up and says, what are you doing? I'm working, baby. Read my Bible. She said, can I watch you? <laughs> I guess. All right. So she pulls up this stool, and she leans in over the computer, and she starts going, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, yeah. She goes, Daddy? Yes, Ella. That's an E. Yes, baby, I just typed an E. My name starts with an E. Oh, that's great. I'm glad you know that. You're learning ABC's guess great. So keep working. Oh, oh, Daddy, stop, stop. Okay, what? There's an L. I know, baby, that's an L. Great job. Can I touch it? No, 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 baby, that's okay. But what's the rest of the letters in your name? L. Great job. Daddy, what are you doing? I'm, I'm trying to work, baby. How long are you gonna work? 
until I'm done, baby. Can I stay up with you? Uh, no, you cannot. Please let me sit in your lap while you work. No, it was inconvenient. Incredibly inconvenient. But here's the difference. Her doing that did not make me angry. In fact, I closed my laptop, we cuddled for 30 minutes, watched a program that she is way too young to watch, right? <clears throat> when mom goes to sleep, you know, it's whatever, man. I, I need some me time, right? She goes, I, I lay down, I'm like, all right, it's time. Let me take you to bed, and I come back. If one of you would have done that to me, we would not have cuddled. Like, it, I react to her different. I react to her inconvenience differently. See, I receive her like a child because she's three years old. She can't help herself. I don't have the same expectations for her that I would for you. If you tried to touch my keyboard after staring me at me like this, and you were just in your underwear... Wouldn't do that for any of you. But Jesus, this is what Jesus means, and this is what he's saying. He's saying this. People are like children. Like, and I know that because I'm like a child. I am. I throw fits. I'm whiny. I'm needy. I care more about, like, just getting what I want and not really being helpful. I can't help myself most of the time. We're all, we're all like children, and, people, and Jesus said, people are like children, and they're difficult to love, and they, they seem insignificant, but in my kingdom, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first, and you should be a servant to all. So I'm saying this, embrace them, receive people as a child, the people who are hard to love, be kind and be compassionate to them. Receive them like a child. Understand their ignorance about certain things. Be patient through their annoyance. Realize that this is different, a different kind of approach to how people were treated in this time because everything was very caste system. You were better than me. There was clear defining lines of who was better than the other person because we all had jobs in that community and children ranked really, really, really low. And, and know this, disciples, when you receive a person like a child, know that it's going to be inconvenient and you're going to have to sacrifice and you're going to have to be patient. You're going to have to have compassion because people are difficult to love. So love people like you would love a child. And it's not going to come with any recognition. It's not going to come with any improved status. It's not going to come with maybe even any appreciation or thank you. People will abuse you, and they're not going to reciprocate sometimes your, the care that you give them or the patience or the sacrifice. You won't receive possibly any personal gain. And Jesus says, that's greatness in my kingdom, to serve, to serve the people who need you, who can't take care of themselves. The next illustration that, that kind of he comes around, John goes, hey, teacher. And I don't know if it's because he's like, oh, man, we just got yelled at. Somebody say something. Somebody say something. All right. Hey, teacher, guess what? We did something awesome today. You'll be proud of us. Look, daddy, look. 
Right? That's basically what he's saying. And he says this, teacher, there was a man casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. And what John's saying there is, Jesus, we came across this guy and he's never met you or met us. And you know how you sent us to cast out demons? That's what he was doing. And he was doing it in your name. Man, what do you think his intentions are, Jesus? What if he's ruining your reputation, Jesus? What if he's not doing it the way that, that you do it? What if, what if it's not right? So we told him to stop. We told him to stop. Jesus said, why? You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have stopped him. That's none of your concern because you can't know why he was doing it. You can't know why he said that. You don't know his heart, whether he was doing that for an agenda to make himself look good. He could have been doing it for all the right reasons. At the end of the day, what was happening is that if someone does, he says, if someone does great works in my name, like there's no way that he's gonna be able to to speak evil against me later. Like he was helping the cause, man. Our message was getting out. I don't care what his heart is. That's not your concern. Hey, I'm God. I know his heart. I'll take care of him at the end of the day. Like, I got this. You be concerned about you. Secondly, he says this. After, after, so after he kind of says, why did you do that? He says something really awesome. If, if he's not against us, then he's for us. If he's not your enemy, then he's your friend. Your relationship to him was completely, you misperceived it completely. And he's referencing the fact that earlier on, the, the Pharisees came to him and said, oh, he casts out demon, demons in the name of Beelzebub, which is the devil, right? So the only reason he can, has the power to cast out demons talking about Jesus is because he's like the devil. <laughs> and Jesus is referencing that and saying, no, that's our enemy, guys. The people who are saying, no, we're from Satan. The guy who's saying that I'm the Messiah, the Christ, the, the one who's come to like heal the nations, that guy, he's on your team, man. He's on your team. He said, it doesn't matter whether it's a great work, and this is how he ends it, or even if someone does something as small as gives you a cup of water in my name, he will not lose his reward. He says, I'm redefining what it means to be great. I know, John, that you've gone out and cast out demons and healed people. He sent the disciples out to do that. I know that you've done that. But that great work that you think is so fantastic doesn't make you any better than someone who took care of someone who was sick in my name. Someone who fed someone who was hungry in my name, clothed the homeless person in my name, showed grace and mercy to someone who had wronged them in my name. You're missing the point, John. Your idea of greatness is not mine. The shocking thing about that is John's question. What does John say? John says, hey, we found this guy, casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him. Does he say, we try to stop him because he's not following you, Jesus. And we don't want your reputation to get tarnished, right? We don't want him to be saying the wrong things about you and leading people astray, Jesus. We don't want him to, 
to completely embarrass you and hinder your ministry, Jesus. No, 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 no. That's not what he says. He said, because he's not following us. Jesus, what if, what if he says something that ruins my reputation? What if he says something that's embarrassing? What if he creates this, this whole city, like turns this whole city into hating him and now they'll hate me? See, John and the rest of the disciples are 100% consumed with their desire for power, for honor, and for status because they see Jesus, yes, as the Messiah, but as a political liberator who will come in, overthrow Rome, and set up the most powerful kingdom in the world. And guess what? We're part of the entourage. I benefit. I become great if Jesus becomes great. They see Jesus as a meal ticket. And they, there's some intentions of theirs that are great because they believe that the Messiah will call all nations to himself and that the whole world will be transformed by the law of God, that the world will start to live according to God. And that's what they want. They want, to, they want people to know Yahweh and to be holy and all this stuff. So some of those intentions are pure, but really what it comes down to is they care more about people following them and doing what they do than they do about serving people. And what Jesus is trying to teach them here He's saying, guys, you completely and utterly have missed the point. It's not about you being great. It's about you treating people in such a way that includes them into me. And all you've done by going to that guy is publicly humiliated him, discredited him, shamed him, whether he was doing it for the wrong reasons or not. And what you've done is you've put a hindrance between me and him now. Now when he hears the name of Jesus, now when he thinks of you and me, all he's gonna think of is the Pharisee. The one who says, you're not good enough. You're not worthy. And that's not how I receive people. I would have received him like a child. I would have been compassionate on him, just like I was compassionate with all the crowds that have been following me, with even the Gentile woman who came up to me, with even the woman who touched me with blood, the ones who would have made me unclean. I was compassionate with them, and you have eroded and severed any chance for a relationship. And here's the key to the whole day. This passage is not just about sin, but it's about how sin affects your relationships. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is about all of us. See, the, all through history, over and over and over, this nature of sin that all of us have as people has completely separated us from God. It has ended the our relationship with him. Cut us off from him, right? But the other thing that it done, has done is it separated us from one another. So God makes this kingdom out of Israel and over and over we see them fail. And you know why? It's because the leaders of that nation are consumed with the idea that they are trying to make a great name for themselves. And that's what me and you do every day. Do you ever worry about what people think about you? In your workplace, are you like consumed with bitterness because someone else got the job that you were supposed to get? Are you constantly feeling unworthy and unvaluable and that you're just trying your very, very, very best to feel 
whole or worth something or great. See, the source of all sin, the source of every single sin there ever was and ever is, comes from our innate drive to prove that we are important. We don't need anyone else. It's all about us. It's all self. And Jesus is saying, that's what everyone else has done and it's wrecked it. I'm saying it's not that. I'm saying that greatness is something completely different. It's something completely different. So he goes on to say this. He confronts the issues with his disciples. Obviously, they're struggling from the same thing and he doesn't want his kingdom, who he's going to like give to the disciples, right? They're gonna be the people who foster this young church this new community of believers, he's telling them, don't act like the Pharisees. Don't think that you're better than them. Lower yourself below them and serve them. Don't be the hindrance, or another word could be the stumbling block. One of my favorite movies that I've ever watched in my entire life, and I've watched it a billion times, and I think that it is a seminal work, one that is full of uh, life lessons and art, it is the great Disney film, Cool Runnings. Um, I don't know if you like that movie. I freaking love that movie because um, I feel the rhythm and the rhyme. <sighs> but I don't know if you remember, right? So there, it all sets up with this. There's an Olympic trial, right? And there's a favorite, right? Daris Bannon. Yeah? Daris. Oh, he's awesome, right? And Daris is like the, the island, man. The island loves Daris. And this is based on a true story. And so they show up at these Olympic trials and he's just trying to qualify for, to go to the Olympics and he's expected to win at the Olympics. And so he gets on the block. He's like, I got it. There's some other guys that look kind of mean mugging him and whatnot. And there's one little like wormy dude over in the corner who's like nervous as all get out. And he's kind of the, the Carlton of the crew. You know what I mean by when I say that? He's the nerdy guy. And they take off off the blocks and Doris comes out hot. And he, all he sees in front of him is everything that he wanted to get to, the reward, to go to the Olympics and to win it. And you see old Carlton over there trip. Rich boy. <laughs> he trips, and what happens? Not only does he fall, but he falls into Doris's lane and trips Doris. And you see Doris laying in the, the dirt and caked in it. He's watching people in an amazing shot get blurry as they run across the finish line. Tears streaming down my face. Push carts and Sanka and all that ice, ice. Um, so, so what Jesus is about to say when he says, what he says in the next verse, it reminds me of Cool Runnings. He, he hindered him. He made him stumble and fall. And so verse 42 says this. Can you put it up there? Whoever causes one of these little ones, the ones he was just talking about, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That word sin in the Greek right there could actually mean stumble. If you are the temptation, if you are the cause for one of these people to sin, then it would be better that you would be violently and completely disposed of, forgotten, separated from everyone at the bottom of the ocean. It would be better if you were there. Because they are important 
to me, Jesus says. This whole entire passage is about the kingdom. It's about community and it's about relationships. Jesus is saying, sin will sever relationships. Sin will cut you off and erode everything that you've worked on or everything that's important to me. Jesus says, when asked what the greatest commandment is, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And then he says this, the second is the same as the first. What is it? Love your neighbor as yourself. Are you a stumbling block to people? Do you hinder people because you are trying to get ahead of them? Is it a dog-eat-dog world for you? Are you willing to literally trip them to get what you want? Are you willing to shame them and put them down? Is that your heart so that you look better? I don't know about you, I'm guilty of this all the time. I want recognition if someone else is getting it, right? I am a jealous and wicked dude. And I think we can all relate to that. And Jesus is so serious about it. Like this is the, time, the point in time where he goes, you cannot, this is the one thing you cannot buy into because it's the worst thing that could happen to you. And so he goes off into this insane warning, this insane warning. He goes and says, you should take extreme measures to make sure that this doesn't happen. You should run away from this source of all your sin, this need to feel great. You should run away from it with everything that you have. And honestly, if it's your feet that are gonna take you there, you should cut them off. And when you get there, if it's your hands that's gonna attain them, then you should cut it off. And if it's your eye, if it's your desires and what you see, the lusts of your flesh that are continually driving you to want to sin against people and against God, then pluck it out because it's way better for you to walk lame the rest of this life so that you can receive the reward and be lame in the afterlife. You'd much rather be a cripple You'd much rather be a blind man. You'd much rather be someone completely unclean, defiled, and insignificant and enter into the kingdom than you would have the greatest and most like, powerful fame and whatever it might be in this life and walk into hell, the unquenchable fire where their worm does not stop and the fire's not quenched. And the word he uses for hell there is Gehenna, Gehenna. What's Gehenna? I'm glad you asked. Gehenna is a valley that's just south of uh, Jerusalem, <clears throat> outside of the, the city. And Jesus actually, in that verse where he says, for their worm never ceases or whatever he says, and for their fire is never quenched. See, he's actually quoting Isaiah 66. It's the last verse in Isaiah. It's the last verse of Isaiah. And it's where God is talking about this valley, Gehenna, the valley of Hinnon. We see it also mentioned in Jeremiah. We see it mentioned in Numbers. And it's a place, right, where long ago that a cult who were Jews, who had been, you know, who were Israelites, a cult started to make sacrifices to a false god named Melech, right? Baal, a Canaanite god, Phoenician god. And so that, and what they were sacrificing was actually people. It's a place of human sacrifice. And it was an abomination to God. 
In fact, it was, is what's really sick about it is not only were they doing that, like sacrificing people, it didn't really work because Melech didn't deliver when they were sacrificing these people to him because he's not real. So they're like, oh, we need to sacrifice even more. We need to step our game up. So you know who we'll sacrifice now? Our own children. The place was an abomination. The disciples heard what he said there. You will end up in Gehenna, the place where you will receive great and fearful judgment because it is an abomination to me and it's outside of the city, which means you will be separated from me forever. You will be separated from the kingdom. You will be separated from the son of man. You'll be separated from the father forever and for a Jew to hear that, that he would be forever, forever defiled and unclean and not part of the community would be crushing. It meant a lot to them. It's the place of unquenchable fire, of eternal judgment, punishment poured out and wrath. And now you're like, oh, bro, I don't like any of those words that you just said. Can we just be done and go eat some food right now? And I'd love to, but here's the truth, is that sin is real, and we try to like minimize it a lot of times, but honestly, it is such an offense to God that he punishes it with fire, He calls it the valley of slaughter because anyone who has rebelled against him will suffer. And you're going, man, that God does not sound like a very good one. I don't like when you're talking about that. What about God being love? What's up with that? You gotta think about it. We need to start to understand that sin is a lot weightier than we think it is. R.C. Sproul says it this way, that every sin is an act of cosmic treason a useless, a futile attempt to dethrone God in his sovereign authority. It's what Adam and Eve did when they said, we don't need you, we can be our own God. It's what they did at the Tower of Babel where they said, look at all that we've accomplished on our own. Let's make a great name for ourselves. It's treason. It's you saying, God, I, I don't care what your law is. I don't care what you think. I know better. I can do better. You are now my enemy. I am my own. And it's an abomination to God. You become his enemy and you are separated from him. And you will be judged for that because God is just and he is holy. And that creates a huge dilemma for me and you. A huge dilemma. Because we've got to start seeing sin not as like, oops, I watched a bad movie. Or oops, I said some cuss words. Or oops, I drank too much. All these things, all these little ticky, no, we need to see sin as something far more pervasive in our lives. Something that honestly, even if we did try to avoid sin by cutting off whatever's tempting us to sin, our arm or our foot or our eye, whatever it might be, even if we tried to get rid of that stuff, we need to understand that that wouldn't fix the problem because it's not. It's not our hands that are the problem. It's not our feet or our eyes that are our problem. Our sin problem comes straight from our hearts. You need a new heart. And the dilemma is this, is you're not a surgeon. You're already dead. It's really hopeless. Sin is hopeless. 
Sin always leads to hopelessness and death. You have no way of giving yourself a new heart to cure you and to solve the problem. You're going, dude, how could a loving God be full of wrath and punish someone who can't even do anything for themselves and to like earn their way back into his favor to correct the wrong? How in the world could he be just by pouring out condemnation or pouring out wrath and judgment and punishment on people? And to this, I would to that I would say this. If you think that hell is the pinnacle, is the most violent and the worst, like example of God's judgment and wrath, hell, then you're completely wrong. Hell, hell is, it doesn't even come close to the amount of wrath, the full extent of this a heinous thing to do. What is far-fetched and insane and what seems to be completely heinous and wrong is that God would actually allow and be pleased to punish and judge someone who'd never made a mistake. Hell is not the most violent example of God's wrath or judgment in this world. The cross is. (sighs) You're not hopeless. His wrath doesn't exist without his love, and his, his love far exceeds his wrath. Look at the cross. See, it all starts off this whole passage, Judge, when Jesus says, he says, it's simple. I'm the son of man, and I'm gonna die. I'm gonna be delivered in the hands of men. They're gonna kill me, and I'm gonna come back in three days, and the disciples had no clue what he was getting at. They didn't know that his kingdom would be come in that way. In fact, it worried them every single time he said it because they were like, no, that's not how it's supposed to happen. You're supposed to come and, and change the whole world. And he's saying, I don't, I don't change the world by changing your politics. I don't change the world by putting you on a throne next to me. I change the world because I can give you a new heart and greatness in my kingdom. Real, lasting greatness looks like repaired, reconciled relationships where we receive one another like children, where we're patient and compassionate with one another, where we include people and help them along their way. You'll all be salted with fire, he says. Everyone will be salted with fire. You're all gonna suffer. You're gonna lose limbs in the process. It's worth putting off sin. It's worth, church, hear me on this. It is worth cutting off the things of your flesh that do cause you to sin. It doesn't mean that too. Hey, guys, you have a problem looking at things that you shouldn't look at, like it, it, it can't end, and you're keeping it in the secret, I promise you it's hurting and severing your relationships. Pluck out your eye. Don't own a smartphone. I mean, there, there's ways that we can do that. And there's plenty and plenty and plenty of other examples. That's just the first one that came to my mind. Wonderful. Uh, but here, here's the thing. If, if your life is filled with discord in your relationships, then it's just proof, 100% proof, that you have sin that you need to cut off. There's places that you do. Every relationship that happens in your life, every one of them is affected by your sin. 
it doesn't just affect you. Those secret little sins, people, that you think are just between me and God and I'll deal with it later and God will give me grace. No, they're actually severing and eroding the relationships of the people around you. You want proof? Think about it this way. The closer someone is to you, when you wrong them, when you wrong them, the more complicated it is to heal and to get better, isn't it? If, if I just, somebody who I'm acquaintance with, if I offend them, I can apologize to them, walk away, hopefully it's better, whatever. It doesn't really inconvenience my life much after that. But if I, if I do that to one of my close friends, it changes things. It makes things more complicated. If I were to do that with a, a coworker, it would change things because I have to see them every day. If I did that to one of my children, it would very much complicate things. Heck, 99.9% of the people who are in therapy right now blame it on their mom and dad. It complicates things when our sin is before us and when we sin. A perfect example is this. And the example is this. The most complicated relationship when we offend and sin one another is what? With a man and his, huh? Wife, no, it's football team. Uh, <laughs> sorry, the Vols, the Vols game yesterday sucked. It was awful and they've sinned against me and offended me and I wanna cut them off. But anyway, no, it's with his wife. And you know what Paul says in Ephesians 6 about that relationship? He says, hey, husbands, love your wives like Paul loved the church, or like Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. See, guys, you are called to live a life of sacrifice, one that you might lose a few limbs, that you might go through fire, but when it comes down to it, salt is good. Don't lose your saltiness. Don't be a person who doesn't make things better. Salt makes everything better. Think about it. If you said, what does salt taste like, what would you say? Salty. You know why? Because when you put it on chicken, it doesn't taste like salt anymore. It just makes chicken taste more like chicken, and chicken's freaking good. Right? My kids can eat vegetables because salt exists now. It's not as inconvenient anymore to be a parent, I guess. Have you ever put it in chocolate? Oh, good God. It's so good. Hot chocolate with some salt in it. I wanted to reject it with everything I was, but I couldn't because I loved it so much. See, salt makes everything better. It gives it flavor. It enhances what's already there. And so what Jesus is saying in this whole entire thing is you need one another. Have salt within yourselves and be at peace with one another. You know why? Because your life will be better for it. So my challenge to you today, we need to get out of here. Challenge for you today is this. Instead, church, for you, <clears throat> instead of constantly trying to be worthy, to get ahead, to make something great of yourself, know that your sin is eroding and severing the very thing that you need the most, your relationships with God and with the people around you. You're not just hurting you, you're hurting everyone, and we all suffer. So be weak. Be okay to be the cripple. The cripple would have been unclean in their culture, by the way. He's literally saying, it's okay to be all kinds of messed up. Be messed up with people and receive people who are real messed up. Don't worry about following every single rule like the Pharisees follow it, but show compassion and kindness to people. 
Don't cause other people to sin. See, God is preparing a movement to happen. Jesus is preparing these men that when it all hits the fan and and everything goes down, that they will take these brand new people who have no clue what they're talking about, who are scared, who will soon be persecuted by the church, by by the the Jewish uh, nation. He is saying, you you have to take care of them. And you're sitting here right now because they listen to him. So church, the people who God has put around you to take care of, always take time to do so. Your relationships are important. If you're in here today and you are not following Jesus, and you might be in this place where like you just don't know and, and you're here, we love that you're here and you are so welcome here. You're welcome to ask questions here. You're welcome to be mad at God here. You're welcome to not believe anything here. We still want you to be here and we want to invite you into the family because we care for you. And there's a lot of days that I doubt big time too. And so you're, you're not alone in that, but you, need, you do need to hear this, that there is judgment and wrath for sin. There is a Gehenna, a place of torment and separation. But Jesus, because of the great love that he loves you, even when you're screwed up, even when you're like a child, he will receive you. If you follow him as Lord, he will receive you gladly and he will forgive you for your sins and atone for them. He will put a new heart in you and he'll make you part of a family that does not, does not break apart when sin enters into it, but forgives, one that accepts and receives. Today, if you're there, there's gonna be people up front, man, come talk to us. Know today that the reward is worth it, even if it means cutting something off. Let's pray. Jesus, help us to see the gravity of our sin and what it does to everything around us. God, that we might not sin against you. Help us in our weakness. We are like children. We we have no clue what to do. We we don't love people well. We love ourselves a lot. Help us to be humble and, and be able to admit that, God, so that we can be sent as your kingdom into this world. God, show us that the people around us are what you're most worried about, not our church attendance or how good of a little boy or girl we've been this week, God, but how we love people. Jesus, thank you for loving us when we were unlovable. As we enter into communion, God, I pray that you would do something here in this place. If if anyone is offended by someone else, God, that they would work that out here that they would repair that relationship. They, see that they would see it's actually important to do so because they need each other. God, make us salt in this world. It's in Jesus' name, amen.